If you would, take your Bible and open to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew, uh, we've been going through a series of messages in that book. If you're not familiar with your Bible or if you have access to the Bible on your phone and you want to pull that out, Matthew is the first gospel, the first book in the New Testament. Your, your Bible is divided into an Old Testament and a New Testament. The New Testament takes up about the last third of the Bible, and Matthew is the first book in there. And so we have been going through uh, a series of messages in, in that book, and we're looking at Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8 this morning, and then we'll go to Matthew 9 next week and 10 after that. Too much feedback? Don't know that that'll make any difference, but we'll go with it for a minute. So, uh, all right. Before we get to Matthew chapter 8 this morning, I want us to have a time of, of prayer together, praying about two, two specific things that, that are going on in the life of our church right now. The first is that we have a group of folks that are getting ready to go this Saturday, they're leaving, to go on a mission trip called Appalachian Outreach. Appalachian Outreach is a ministry that happens in the eastern part of Tennessee, so to speak, and they, they go to work on people's homes, but not just to work on people's homes, but, but to minister to the people that are there. And minister and build relationships to the point that uh, they begin to write to these guys. There's a man named Levi who every so often will send letters to Mr. Lamar and to other people in our church just letting them know how much our church has meant to them as they go to work on their house and, and encourage them and care for them. I want to show you a picture of one of the places that we're going this year with Appalachian Outreach. You'll be able to see a picture of this lady's house um, that they're going to work on just to have an idea of the type of ministry. They're, they've got different projects assigned during the week of a way to, to minister to this lady. I believe her name is Betty, if, if I remember correctly. If you go back, we can see a picture of Betty. So you'll know that our folks are ministering to Miss Betty this week, and you can continue to pray for her. Think about uh, our team as they go and pray that they'll have a chance to share God's love uh, with Betty, the people that they interact with on, on this mission trip. And we're not just going to build a house, we're going to minister the love of Christ and the hope of Christ to the people there. And so our team is getting ready to do that. If you're going on the Appalachian Outreach uh, mission trip, would you stand for us just for a minute so we'll, we'll know who is uh, who's going on that trip? We've got some people in the balcony. I know it's a little bit difficult to see, but some guys down here on the floor, so you'll be able to, uh, to pray for these folks. All right, you guys can be seated. And we'll... Um, the second group that we want to pray for as we continue with our, our service this morning is remembering Memorial Day weekend. If you have served in some way in the armed forces, any particular branch, any way that you have served in the armed forces, or if you are the immediate family member of someone who served and has now passed, whether in combat or, or not, in service or not, if you would stand right now. So those who have served in our armed forces are immediate family members of those who have passed. Wow. That is fantastic. That is amazing. And I know if there was ever a group that did not want to be acknowledged for something like that, you would be that group. And so you would sit down very, very quickly. But uh, 
that's amazing. I, I had no idea that it was that uh, percentage of our church. So thank you for, for what you've done to, uh, to serve our country and the cause of freedom and the fact that we gather here for worship this morning. That idea of religious liberty, of freedom, is, is a tribute to that. And so we remember that this morning. Let's pray together uh, as a church in regard to those two things as we begin our time uh, this morning in study of God's word. Father, we thank you for the opportunity for the Appalachian Outreach Mission Trip to, to head out at the end of this week and, and the opportunity that they will have to minister to, uh, to this woman there, to work on her house, but more than that, just to strike up conversations with her and to, to care for her and to remind her that you have not forgotten her, that you love her, that you have a plan for her life, for this man, Levi, who has been so impacted by our team who continues to write letters and correspond and talk about your love and your presence in his life. Somebody that the world around us might easily push to the side, might forget, might even regard as a leper, as we'll read in the scripture this morning, but your love is there at work in his life and in Miss Betty's life and all the people there. And Father, we remember this weekend, those who have served in our armed forces for this uh, country, this gift that we have of freedom, of religious liberty, for those who have passed on, for their family members, remembering that, that act of, of service. God, we know that freedom, that being able to live in this country is a great gift, not something to be taken lightly, not something to be worshipped. You are to be worshipped, but it is a great gift from you. And so, Father, we gather here, we read scripture, we, we, we baptize people publicly, and part of that is because of that religious liberty that, that you have given as a gift through the freedom and through those who have served our country. And so, Father, make us aware of that, and God, that we would even use Memorial Day as a, as a way to remind people around us of your goodness and of that work of freedom that you provide from sin through Christ, that there is great freedom in this country and that there is great freedom from sin because of Jesus. And so we remember that together this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have your Bible open to Matthew chapter 8, let's read those verses together. Now, we're not going to read the whole chapter of, of Matthew chapter 8. We're just going to read down through verse 13. When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. And a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now, Slight pause right there. We're not going to cover verse 4 in any detail this morning, not because we're scared of verse 4, we just don't have time. But there's that odd phrase at the beginning of verse 4 where it says, see that you tell no one. You might say, well, that seems completely contrary to everything that Jesus was about. The reason, and you'll see this in Matthew and Mark in particular, the reason that he will often say, tell no one or don't tell anyone right now, is because... He knew that the people had an idea in their mind of who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do. And most of the people were t thinking of a military ruler, thinking that someone would come in and overthrow Rome. And Jesus knew that the moment the word got out that there was a Messiah figure, 
his opportunity to really show who God was and to show God's love was going to be gone. And, and so he was very cautious early in his ministry about not getting the wrong idea out there about who he was and what he was doing in the world. And so that's why you'll see those type of phrases in Matthew and Mark's gospel especially. Okay, re-enter verse 5. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. And most translations, instead of servant, will say son. The word can mean either one, either a servant or a son. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. May God bless the reading of his word. If you've spent any time around kids, or if you've spent any time on a playground, you've heard the phrase before, you're not the boss of me, you can't tell me what to do. Now there's a chance that you heard that before you came to church this morning, that that may have been spoken in your house, or that may have been spoken in the car on the way here, but if you've spent any time around kids, you've heard, you're not the boss of me, you can't tell me what to do. That comes very naturally to kids. This idea of, I want to know who's in charge, and I want to know what I can do and I can't do. These two words, authority and actions. Authority, who's in charge, who's in control, and actions, what am I supposed to do with my life, how am I supposed to act, Those two words sum up Matthew chapter 8. If you take your bulletin that you got when you came in or that worship guide that you got and you turn it over to the back, there are a few notes that you can look at as we go along during our sermon this morning. But essentially, authority, who's in charge, and actions, what should I be doing, those are the two words that sum up this, this passage. It's authority that leads to actions. It's no good to have authority and it not impact the way that we act. Jesus here is establishing his authority, and Matthew, as he's writing this gospel, does it in a very interesting way. I've told many of you I love uh, literature, and I love the way that stories are put together. Scripture is amazing the way it speaks to science, the way it speaks to leadership, the way it speaks to history, speaks to so many different topics, but literature and story making is one of the one of the primary things that we see coming out of, of God's Word, and I want to show you how this topic of authority emerges in Matthew's gospel. So look back, and you have to scroll up in your phone or turn back to the left. Look back in Matthew chapter 4, at the very end of Matthew chapter 4 in verse 23. One of the things that Matthew does in his gospel that's very fascinating is he will alternate between teaching sections 
and ministry sections. And so what you'll get in Matthew as you read through it is you'll get a very long section of teaching. If your Bible or your phone is the type where Jesus' words show up in red, if you have a red letter Bible and it shows up in red, in Matthew, you'll get these huge sections of red, and then you'll get a very long section of black. And then it alternates back to red, and then it goes to black. And what you're seeing is Matthew is set up where he alternates between teaching and ministry, between teaching and doing, showing how Jesus' ministry is comprised of both. And he alerts us to that in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Look at this verse. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So that's the verbal idea, teaching and proclaiming and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. So if you circle Matthew chapter 4 verse 23, what you have in that verse is essentially an outline for the rest of the gospel. Jesus taught and Jesus healed. Jesus said things and Jesus did things. He wasn't just a teacher and he wasn't just a healer. He did both and they fit together on perfect on purpose. And then in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, you get the Sermon on the Mount. And so if your Bible has the red letters, 5, 6, and 7 are almost completely red. And then you get to the very end of chapter 7, and look what happens here. There's a very intentional wording at the end of Matthew chapter 7 in verse 28 and 29. It says... When Jesus had finished these words, and that's Matthew's phrase that he'll use every time Jesus wraps up a speaking section in Matthew, he'll use that type of phrase. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. And then they give the reason they were amazed. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. And then he's going to go into Matthew chapter 8, and he's going to show what that authority looks like. Look down in Matthew chapter 8, down in verse 8. So Matthew 8, 8. See how this idea of authority shows up again. He goes to the centurion. In Matthew 8, 8, it says, The centurion said to him, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under what? Authority. There's the word again. With soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Kids pick up very quickly who they're supposed to listen to and who they're not supposed to listen to. Who's the authority figure and who's not the authority figure? When Amanda and I leave our kids uh, with someone, we always say to our kids, this person is in authority. In other words, mom and dad aren't around, and so this person is in authority. Now, when the grandparents have them, all the rules go out the window. You know, none of those rules apply when the grandparents are in charge. All this idea of authority and what you're supposed to do kind of go out the the door. But there's this idea of the kids know this person can tell me what to do, and this other person, they're not the boss of me. They can't tell me what to do. And Matthew is establishing very clearly that if you're trying to figure out who the boss is, if you're trying to figure out who has authority, it's Jesus. And I know that sounds so simple, but we recognize for our own lives how difficult that is. The idea that Jesus would be the one in authority. He would be the one who's in charge of all things. And Matthew establishes very clearly that there is no area and there is no person 
who lies outside the authority of Jesus. In other words, nobody can say to Jesus, you're not the boss of me. No one and no place is able to say that. In Matthew chapter 8 and 9, there are 10 instances where Jesus does a miraculous work, where he does something great. He even, and I'm cautious to make this uh, illustration because my my mother-in-law is in town, he even heals Peter's mother-in-law. And so we're careful on mother-in-law jokes at this point, okay? Careful on mother-in-law jokes, but it's like Matthew is telling us that if Jesus can heal someone's mother-in-law, he can do anything. There is nothing that lies outside of his power. He can calm the storm. He can raise the dead. He can cure leprosy. There is literally nothing that Jesus can't do that everything falls under his authority. The question is, do we look to him as Lord, like this leper and this centurion are going to do, or do we just consider Jesus a religious figure? Or do we just consider Jesus a good teacher? There are a lot of people. And in fact, you could count most people in the camp of those who respect Jesus, who think Jesus is a good teacher, who think Jesus was a good person. But there's a big leap to go from that point to Jesus as Lord. And the early Christians, the one phrase that set them apart from all of the other people is Jesus is Lord. That was their motto, that was their banner, that was the thing that set them apart because they were saying Jesus is in control of the universe. Jesus is in control of our lives. He is the one who reigns over everything else. He is my boss. And that was the defining feature. Baptism was a visible way of saying Jesus is my Lord. When someone was baptized, they were saying, I'm not in charge of my life anymore. I believe that Jesus is in charge of my life, and I am going to follow after him. But one of the things that set Jesus apart was that he not only spoke with authority, but he acted with authority. So there's authority, but there are also actions. And I want to show you two of these actions. We don't have time to look at all of chapter 8 and 9 this morning, but look at the beginning of chapter 8. I want us to watch the story of the leper And then also watch the story of the centurion because Matthew uh, does something very unique the way he ties these stories together. So look down in Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. It says, when Jesus came down from the mountain. Now what's being referred to here is at the beginning of chapter 5 when Jesus was giving the Sermon on the Mount, it says that he went up on the mountain and he began his teaching And he taught them as one having authority. He sat down in the place of the rabbis. The rabbis were the Jewish teachers of the time. But one of the things that was unique about the rabbis is the way that they taught is they taught by passing on the traditions from previous rabbis. And so you can pick up a book called the Mishnah or a book called the Talmud. If you have any friends that come from a Jewish background, you may have people at your work that come from a Jewish background, ask them to show you a copy of the Talmud or or the Mishnah. It's this huge collection of Jewish teachings that were established over time, and it will say, Rabbi so-and-so said this, and then Rabbi so-and-so commented on that, and then Rabbi so-and-so said this, and it's just all these teachings that were passed down. And then Jesus showed up on the scene, And he spoke not as the rabbis who were passing on tradition. He spoke as one having authority. And so he spoke these words. And then it says, 
when he came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. Matthew will tap into this idea of crowds a lot in his gospel. What we find later in the gospels is the crowds will follow Jesus until he says something controversial. And then he'll lose huge populations. Jesus would have been a nightmare for a contemporary political PR person. This idea that you go out on the campaign trail and you have to say all the right things at all the right times, Jesus didn't play by those rules. He would have these huge crowds that would follow after him, and then he would say something like, if you're going to come after me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, and he would lose 95% of the people because it just it didn't make any sense to them what he was saying. And so when it says that large crowds followed him, large crowds were primarily following him because they wanted to know, who is this guy? Who in the world could sit down in the place of a rabbi and speak like he was God? How do you get away from that? Or how do you get away with that? How are you allowed to sound like God? And what Jesus was going to show them is, I am God. I am God with you. And so he was establishing this in Matthew chapter 8, verse 2. Matthew 8, verse 2. It says, a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Okay, if you're a Bible underliner, there are so many things in in this verse and these verses to, to pay attention to. The first is the word leper. A leper, the best way that we have to describe it in contemporary terms, obviously it was someone who had a skin disease, someone who was very contagious, and so they were pushed out from society. There was no cure for the disease. Maybe the closest we can get is in the early days of the AIDS epidemic, or or probably a better illustration would be Ebola. The the fear that you saw spreading when the Ebola crisis was at its height, and how people were not shaking hands anymore, they weren't even giving high fives, they were giving like elbow bumps or something like that, because there there was so much fear about contacting someone who may have been exposed to Ebola. Ebola is probably the best example we have in contemporary life of what it looked like for someone to have leprosy, to have this disease that not only made you sick, but also forced you away from society a little bit. And we're going to go off on a short little tangent here because I think it's connected. Maybe another example in contemporary life of this is mental illness. Because if you break your arm, people bring you a casserole. But if your brain doesn't work quite right and you have a mental illness, you're shunned from society and you're not accepted, and you don't know how to have friends, and you get pushed off to the side. And so if we're not careful, we almost treat mental illness the way that lepers were treated at that time, and we push people away uh, from, from us, and we, we don't have contact with them just because we don't understand what, what's going on with that person. And so a leper was in that situation, but it says that the leper came to Jesus and said to Jesus, Lord... Now that word Lord, underline it, circle it, draw a star beside it, whatever you want to do. But that word Lord can either mean sir, it can just be a statement of respect, or it could be a statement that carried a divine idea with it. That, that this leper realized that there was something different about Jesus. And so he addresses him, probably not thinking of Jesus as God at that moment, but thinking of Jesus as a healer who was sent from God realizing that Jesus could do something for him that nobody else could do for him. And then verse 3. 
Verse 3, if we really understand it, will completely change the way we think about Jesus. Look, look carefully at verse 3. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now, do you see why verse 3 is so radical and so controversial? Here is someone with leprosy. No one touches them. They have to go around shouting out their disease so that people will stay away from them. They live in colonies, separated. It was a violation of the Old Testament law for a Jewish person to touch a leper. But Jesus all the time broke these rules just to make the Pharisees mad because they didn't understand what God's love was all about. And so Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the leper. Can you imagine what the people around Jesus must have been thinking at this point. Why would you touch him? You touched him, you are going to be unclean. This is cooties times a million. Like this is, this is playground cooties just multiplied over and over that you did not do that. You did not touch a leopard because you were going to be affected and your life was going to be changed and you were going to be just like them. But Jesus touched that leopard. And what we find in that moment is that the God who has authority over the entire universe came down to touch the sickest, most shamed, most outcast person on the planet. Because he who had the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be held onto, but he emptied himself. And he took on the very nature of a servant and he was made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That passage comes from Philippians chapter 2 verses verses 5 to 8. And it demonstrates for us that Jesus came down from his position as God and he came to be among us. And this is one of those things that separates Christianity from every other religion on the planet, that our God did not remain separate from us, that we do not worship a God who says, you have to find a way to get to me. We worship a God who comes to us in our darkest moment, who comes to us in our greatest sin, who comes to us in our greatest shame and our greatest darkness and says, I will touch you and I will make you clean. This is the God that we serve. He has all authority, and yet he acts in perfect humility and perfect healing. And then look down in verse 5. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him. Now, what Matthew has done for his readers at this point is he's given them whiplash, essentially. (laughs) He's taken them from the leper who is completely despised by society, and he's taken them to the centurion, to the military official, to the person who had authority, who was in charge of things. This transition makes me think about some missionaries that we worked with in Mexico one time. And and these missionaries, they lived at a very uh, nice country club in this area of Mexico, had a nice job, worked... uh, you know, had really nice things, a nice car, nice clothes, but they also ministered in this very poor area of town. And so this guy 
whether for better or worse, his strategy for doing missions was he had two sets of clothes. When he went to the country club and he was telling his golfing buddies about Jesus and they were hosting church services at the country club, he wore one set of clothes. But when they went across the street, literally to the poor part of town, to the shanty towns, they wore a different type of clothes just to say that we will be with you. And Jesus is doing something like that here. He goes to the leper and he cares for the outcasts, but then he turns around and he goes to the centurions. And just a reminder for us, I I know that we know this at a surface level, but it's always good to remember this. Rich people who live in gated communities need Jesus just as much as poor people who live in very difficult areas. Sometimes we're we're so intent to to reach out to those who are poor and maybe those who are outcasts. It feels like we're doing some type of social ministry that we forget that people who live in very nice homes and very nice areas, oftentimes their lives are falling apart behind gated communities. And their lives are falling behind apart behind beautiful homes. And so what Matthew says is take the gospel to the poor and take the gospel to the rich because Jesus is Lord of all of them. And he is going to reach out to every one of them. Now watch what he does for the centurion here. It says in verse six, Lord, the centurion says, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. So verse seven, Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. So he's going to do exactly what he did for the leper. He's going to come and be present with the centurion. But the centurion says in verse 8, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. But just say the word and my servant or my son will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go and he goes and to another come and he comes and to my slave do this and he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. In other words, I have not found any Jewish person who has encountered me who has this level of faith that I'm the Messiah. And then in verse 11, I I, I said earlier, I said I like four times in a row there, but forget that. Um, I said earlier that Jesus would say very controversial things. Verse 11 is at the top of the controversy meteor, okay? So look at verse 11. Jesus says, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so what's Jesus talking about? The Jewish people at different points in history were forced to leave the land of Israel. Uh, You still obviously will meet Jewish people in America, and they're not living in Israel. Certainly that changed in the 1940s where a lot of people were able to move back to Israel. But there are Jewish people spread all around the world. It's called the Jewish diaspora, this idea that the Jewish people would be dispersed around the world. And there was a teaching, there was a belief among the Jewish people that at the end of time, when God established his kingdom, that all of the people, all of the Jewish people from east and west would come back together and there would be this incredible party, this incredible banquet with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But look what Jesus does here. Verse 12, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what Jesus has done at this point is remember that this centurion that is being talked about in these verses, he is not a Jew. 
He's a Gentile. He was not considered to be a part of God's people. Just like the leper was separated from society, this centurion was separated from the Jewish people. He was a Gentile. And Jesus has let him into the party And he has said that the Jewish people who thought they were going to get in just because they were a part of this lineage, they're not going to get in to the party. This is why Jesus would lose followers so quickly, because everybody who it looked like were going to be accepted into God's kingdom are actually said, no, you're not going to get in. And everybody who comes to him with simple faith, Jesus says, yes, you will be a part of God's kingdom. Reminder number 1001 to us that just because someone looks religious does not mean that they are part of God's kingdom. There is a way to count ourselves as a religious, to say we go to church, to say we come from a religious family. And Jesus says that is not the way you become a part of the kingdom. The way you become a part of the kingdom is by faith when you experience the healing that only I can bring. And that brings us to our conclusion this morning. This morning is Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost is the celebration after Jesus' resurrection, when he rose back into heaven, when he ascended to heaven. His going back into heaven was not so that he could avoid earth. It was so that he would reign as Lord. Because remember, he has all authority. And so when he is in heaven right now, he is in a position on a throne as the one with all authority. But he said to the people, I won't leave you alone. I will send my spirit. I will send the Holy Spirit who will be with you. And he will bring to you all the life that you need. He will give you new life and he will guide you as you live as my people in this world. God's spirit makes us new. When someone turns from their sins... And they say, I believe Jesus paid the price for my sins. When they are expressing that, God's spirit makes them new, gives them new life. But here's the amazing thing about it. There's a prophecy in the Old Testament that tells us what will happen when God's spirit comes. It's found in Joel chapter 2, verse 26. I think I have it on the screen as, as one of our last slides. Here's this prophecy. You will have plenty to eat until you are full. What does that sound like? Sounds like a banquet, a party. Who got invited to the banquet, to the party? The centurion did, the Gentile, the outcast. And you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Matthew 8 and 9, it's all about God working wonders. And look how it ends. Never again will my people be shamed. Who lived with the most shame in the ancient world? The lepers did. And when Jesus came, he took away that shame, he took away that darkness, he took away that disease, and he gave that leper literally new life. When God's spirit is poured out on his people, on his church, on this world, He will do a work in our lives that we could never do on our own. Which means, God forbid, that we as a people, that we as a church, would ever try to manufacture something that looks like religion based purely on human means. If we do anything as a church that we could do without God's Spirit working in us and through us, it is not from the Lord. 
it's something that we have sought to contrive, that we've sought to do in our own strength. We always are trying to fix our brokenness. We're trying to fix people's lives. We're trying to set things new. And God says, I will do that. And I will do that by a work of my spirit. And so what we pray for and what we hope for is that God's spirit would change our lives and would change our church from the inside out, that he would do something in our lives and in our church that only he will get the credit for. In just a minute, we're going to pray together, and then we're going to sing an old hymn about following after Jesus. If God is at work in your life, if you say, I just need to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, I need to know how to be that leopard, how to be that centurion, however God is working in your life, this will be a chance to respond, and then we will sing this hymn together as our declaration of what it means to follow after Jesus.